Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to the 30 Years War, episode 13. Hello, history friends, patrons all. Welcome to the 13th episode of our 30 Years War series. I hope you're all doing good. I hope that the COVID crisis isn't getting you down too much. And I do hope that you've been enjoying the Bismarck series too. As far as I'm aware, you really have been enjoying it. And I really have to emphasize how much I appreciate your guys' support during these troubling times. A quick glance at our Patreon will show that it's really shot up in the last few months. And I can't tell you how much that means to me. Especially at a time we're at now where incomes aren't exactly certain. Thanks so much for that support. Thanks especially to patron Rebecca Bethello. You may know Rebecca Bethello as one of the ladies-in-waiting to Queen Maria Eleonora of Sweden, the widow of Gustavus Adolphus, in case you weren't aware. Well, Maria Eleonora escaped to Denmark in 1640 and it was a huge scandal, and Rebecca Bethello helped her escape the fiend. Of course she didn't do this at all. Rebecca Bethello was one of many very wonderful and generous supporters for this podcast on Patreon. 
But in this episode, we're not going to talk so much about Sweden or Denmark or anything like that. Our focus remains on Spain, but in a sense also on the Habsburg family itself. In the last episode, we examined the often overlooked problems which Spain faced at home. We learned that not only did the Spanish face great trials with their Dutch revolt, but that around the exact same time and continuing in the background right up to its forceful resolution, the Moriscos, those Moors, or the descendants of Muslim citizens in Spain who had converted but not really converted, These Moriscos demonstrated that not even the mighty Spanish Empire was immune to the consequences of its diverse and vibrant history. The establishment of a unitary Catholic monarchy had never been easy, and the very differences of the composite pieces, which made the Spanish so strong, also served, and in some cases still serve now, to undermine the unity of Spain at certain times. In Andalusia in the south and Valencia in the east, Spain faced down a threat which they aggravated, but which also provided them with no end of security dilemmas, amidst questions of loyalty to the crown. In this episode, then, after having established some of the hidden background detail, we're moving into a place that we're much more comfortable, the diplomatic realm, specifically to look at how the Spanish negotiated with the Austrians to arrange the succession of Ferdinand II in an agreement known as the Onate Treaty. Spanish diplomacy was critically important in shaping the continent, as well as moulding the Habsburg dynasty across the board, with both negative and positive results. Exactly how responsible was Spain for the Thirty Years' War which was to come? Much of the answers can be found in this episode, so if you're ready, let's get into it. Spanish diplomacy and government, on which hinged much of the fate of Europe in this period, dealt with matters of high policy, and the side it presented to the world was peopled with kings and archdukes, ambassadors and commissioners. In practice, however, it also took place in a world of harlots and spies and mudslinging mobs, and not least important, of functionaries fighting their own little wars of bureaucratic advancement, overburdened in any case, falling behind in their work, struggling desperately to get these papers finished before the post departed, and above all, before the next batch of post arrived. Sovereigns and envoys, forming Spanish Habsburg policy, and in the process shaping the history of the world, played out the drama centre stage. But the backdrop was made of paper. In such a way did the historian Charles Howard Carter deliciously describe the course and nature of Spanish diplomacy at the turn of the 17th century. From two key pillars in Madrid and Brussels, documentation, earnest diplomatic representation and no end of espionage was carried out by Spain and its allies, its rivals and its enemies. Protocol insisted that the Spanish, positioned as they were at the top of the food chain, should talk with everyone. The impression was still given that the Spanish Habsburg dynasty was the most powerful and influential in the world, whether or not King Philip III, deep down, possessed the genuine resources or strength to maintain this facade into the future. The first decade of the 17th century, to the relief of those that had watched the silver and gold reserves vanish with astonishing speed, was a time 
of Spanish peacemaking, not war-making. England and the Dutch were transformed from costly enemies into coldly receptive neighbours, who still took every opportunity to chip away and attack Spanish might across the rest of the world. As the Spanish had desperately tried and failed to acquire a total peace treaty, it was understood that the Treaty of London, 1604, and the Twelve Years' Truce, 1609-21, only extended to Europe. Of course, an overactive piracy under sponsorship from either government could easily inflame relations and lead to a resumption of open warfare, an outcome which both King James and the Dutch government were careful to avoid. These two enemies mostly being placated for now, King Philip III's administration turned its attention to domestic matters. The first and most pressing of these was the resolution of the Moriscos problem which we examined last time, but another issue which also drew in the King of Spain was the question of succession, and not succession in the Spanish domains, but in those of his cousins, the Austrian Habsburgs. Considering the common theme of the two Habsburg branches working in tandem during the Thirty Years' War, it may appear surprising to see the Spanish efforts to succeed to the Austrian seat of power, above all the positions of King of Bohemia, King of Hungary, and potentially Holy Roman Emperor between the years 1612 to 17. Indeed, if the negotiations between the two branches of the Habsburg family are mentioned at all, they're normally explained by the Spanish desire to secure its Spanish road supply line from Milan to Brussels. The One Treaty, which emerged from these negotiations, in the opinion of some historians, represented a Spanish effort to bargain with its Austrian relatives for strategic stepping stones along the Rhine in Italy, above all in Alsace, rather than a genuine desire on the part of Spain to succeed to any of the Austrian thrones or to undermine the Austrians' position in the Habsburg hereditary lands. Clarifying what Spain hoped to achieve in its negotiations with its Habsburg cousins is an important exercise because of what it tells us about the Spanish foreign policy aims and concerns during the period just before the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. In her article, Untangling the Complex Negotiations, which dragged on for five years, Magdalena Sanchez examined the opinion of four key individuals at the time to discern what the Spanish goals actually were. You may not recognise the names of each of these individuals, but they may also be familiar to you. They were, first, the commander in the Spanish Netherlands, Ambrogio Spinola, second, King Philip III of Spain, third, Balthazar de Zuniga, the Spanish ambassador to Central Europe from 1608 to 17, and finally, Juan Hurtado de Mendoza de la Vega y Luna, the sixth Duke of Infantado and a councillor of state in Madrid. These four figures all possessed different ideas about what the best policy would be for Spain, and all were affected by the immediate demands of jurisdiction in which they served. To properly focus our narrative, we're going to take first the opinions of Balthazar de Zaniga, since his opinions stand out as the most contrary to the general historical record. It was Zaniga who emphasised the importance of the Bohemian and Hungarian crowns to Philip III, and he presented these crowns as a critical stepping stone towards greater Spanish control of imperial processes. Bohemia was believed to be particularly important in Zaniga's mind, as the crown of Bohemia conferred a vote on its king, which that king could then use during the election of a new Holy Roman Emperor. In short, Zaniga had identified the best means through which Spain could interfere in the constitutional processes of the Holy Roman Empire and bring about the election of a candidate of their choosing.
Zuniga wrote to his king in 1611 to the effect that I believe that one of the most important issues facing your majesty in your monarchy is to procure the kingdom of Bohemia for one of the Spanish princes. In order to place one of these princes in these parts, it would be very convenient to teach them diverse languages, and a knowledge of German or Bohemian would be a most useful thing in acquiring what one wishes to acquire. For this it would be necessary for your highnesses, by that he means Philip III's sons, to have German, Flemish, or even Bohemian tutors, and to cultivate love and knowledge of these nations. To be a good Castilian is a given for a prince of Castile, but the ability to deal confidently with other nations is of infinite value for a prince of the royal house of Spain, since the Spanish kingdoms and dependencies extend to such diverse provinces. Perhaps the failure to do this in other times has been the cause of great damage. The major obstacle to Zaniga's schemes in this regard were the Austrian Habsburgs themselves, specifically the representatives of Ferdinand of Styria, who recommended himself to his ailing cousin Matthias, as he had already been blessed with two sons by this stage. Philip III, it should be said, was more than capable of mounting a legitimate claim of his own to the succession. He was, after all, the sole surviving grandson of Emperor Maximilian II, who had reigned as Holy Roman Emperor from 1564 to 1576. At the early stage of the negotiations between the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs, the Spanish king aimed high, and he hoped to gain the Bohemian crown before it became evident that the Austrians were not willing to relinquish it. Zuniga was initially positive about the outcome, but he was forced to settle on the largely meaningless concession from Ferdinand of Styria that Ferdinand's daughters would come after Philip III's sons in the Austrian succession. This was the best that Zuniga could do when it came to transferring the Bohemian crown from Austria to Spain. By December 1616, Zuniga had largely given up on the mission and compromised for the transfer of Italian and Rhineland duchies instead. As Spain's ambassador to the imperial court, acting in the name of Philip III, Zuniga's efforts shed remarkable light on what the king of Spain actually wanted. It was in Philip's interests to acquire as many concessions as possible for Spain, but Zuniga's insistence that the crowns of Hungary and Bohemia, in particular, were, without doubt more valuable than the Austrian provinces, helped to focus the issue, and underlined not only how well Madrid understood the imperial constitution, but how strongly the king wanted to involve Spain in Central Europe. The acquisition of the Bohemian crown would provide Spain with a chance to stack any imperial election in favour of the Catholics, while it could also lead in time to the election of a Spanish candidate, one of Philip III's sons or grandsons, as the orders of Zuniga optimistically imagined. It is worth considering another factor which compelled Zuniga to ask for such a high price from the Austrians in return for familial friendship and cooperation. An ambassador to previous emperors, Rudolf and Matthias, Zuniga knew all too well the sense of frustration felt when attempting to negotiate imperial aid for the Spanish war efforts against the Dutch. Zuniga was also keenly aware that while Madrid had filtered monies into the deprived imperial coffers, both Rudolf and Matthias had reneged on their duties to defend the Catholic position, choosing instead to roll over in the face of demands from Protestants within their own hereditary lands. It is entirely possible that both Zuniga and his master, King Philip III, viewed Rudolf and then Emperor Matthias with a degree of hostility because of these capitulations, 
since they undermined the overall position of the dynasty in Europe. Faced with the spectacle of several capitulations in Bohemia in particular, the pressing need to acquire the Bohemian crown for Spain takes on a more sinister tone. Did Zuniga believe that only Philip III could roll back the concessions which had been made to the Bohemians, the Austrians and the Hungarians, and that only the King of Spain could whip these recalcitrant heretics into line? With the brothers' quarrel between Matthias and Rudolf only recently being resolved, it is possible that Zuniga did not wish to provide the Austrian branch with any more opportunities to embarrass the reputation of the Habsburg dynasty. By taking the Bohemian crown, not only would future elections be secured for a Habsburg candidate, but the Bohemian insistence on religious freedoms and, equally as insulting, the notion that their crown was elective rather than hereditary, would all be trampled under a deliberate, forceful Spanish policy. While this might appear more like speculation to us than anything else, we're drawn to the recent Spanish track record in their own lands with the expulsion of the Moriscos and the endless efforts to defeat the Dutch. Religious difference in the Spanish mind and many others was easily equated with disloyalty. The Bohemians were disloyal and needed to be brought into line for the overall good of the dynasty and its future security. From this, we can conclude that Zuniga was not satisfied with a narrow definition of Spain as existing within the Iberian Peninsula. Instead, as Sanchez wrote, Zuniga called for a Spanish monarchy with imperial commitments and even imperial designs. Baldazar de Zuniga was an important diplomat in Spanish service, but he was one among several important voices shaping Spanish policy relative to its imperial cousins. Another important voice among these was Ambrogio Spignola, the Genoese commander of Spain's forces in the Spanish Netherlands. Spignola's world was consumed by talk of the Spanish Netherlands, how to defend them, how to supply them, and who endangered them. He was in favour of any policy which would make the defence and supply of Flanders easier, because it would make his job easier. Thus, Spignola's recommendations read like a laundry list of demands which would insulate the Spanish road and guarantee the delivery of men and materials to Brussels. The best means by which Spain could insulate its key European line was by gobbling up other territories in North Italy and along the Rhine. Alsace and the Tyrol were on the top of the list of territories that Spignola wanted, and by relinquishing his claim on the imperial succession in favour of Ferdinand of Styria, Spignola evidently believed that his king would be well-placed to receive such concessions. Arguably the most convincing piece of evidence that pointed towards the single-minded Spanish ambition to preserve its Spanish road can be found in subsequent Spanish policy. Over 1621-23, Spanish and Catholic League forces would overrun the Palatinate and establish a supremacy around the Alsace region. While they never managed to annex the Alsace outright, they did move swiftly into the area. They fortified it, and then they ignored all requests to leave. By staying in place, the Spanish guaranteed the safe passage of money, men and materials to the Spanish Netherlands, and it is, therefore, interesting to note the war turning against the Dutch at precisely this time. By moving directly through the Lower Palatinate, the Spanish found an alternative way to fulfil the desires of Spignola. But as we will see, they also convinced the German Protestants and their external allies that the Spanish ambition had gotten out of control. Juan Hurtado de Mendoza de la Vega y Luna, the 6th Duke of Infantado, 
was the leading light of the Spanish Council of State in Madrid, and he was in regular contact with the king as well. Although he owed his position to the Duke of Lerma, who had acquired the position for him in 1599 to serve his interests, Infantado rose through the ranks to become the leading councillor by 1612. His rise complete, Infantado moved to implement the king's ambitions in the sensitive Austrian negotiations, but he also acted with realistic expectations, and in the knowledge that Spain's resources were not infinite, and that she could be overstretched if careful hands were not at the helm. Infantado was initially in favour of the transfer of Alsace, but he quickly soured on this idea when the sheer complexities of that Alsace region were properly learned. To swap Austrian for Spanish control might seem like a minute detail, but such an operation would actually take Alsace out of the Holy Roman Empire and recast it merely as a cog in the machine of the Spanish Empire. This, Infantado anticipated, would lead to local opposition in the region and could create more problems for Spain if the Alsatians became as implacable an enemy as, perhaps, the Dutch had become. Thus, Infantado moved away from the Alsatian or Central European objectives and focused his full intention instead on North Italy. Through the acquisition of a few interconnected Italian principalities and towns, Spain could reinforce its supply lines, charge tolls for trade between Genoa and Naples, and even be in a position to cut off the water of several further strongholds should they come under the enemy's control. Infantado, like Spaniola, was focused on improving the Spanish road, but unlike Spaniola, Infantado cared more for the potential which a focus on Italy could accrue for Spain and counseled a realistic and conscious approach to the Austrians. That, of course, left King Philip III of Spain. How would this king view the opportunity to wrest concessions from his Austrian cousins? Ferdinand of Styria was Philip's second cousin, but these family ties plainly had not precluded the king from finding ways to squeeze out the concessions he desired. At every step of the negotiations with his Austrian relatives, Philip was assured of his firm grounds for contesting the succession by his jurists. So long as this claim could reasonably be contested, Philip was determined not to relinquish these rights without due compensation. In 1617, Balthazar de Zuniga was replaced in his role as Spanish ambassador and thus chief negotiator by Count Onate, who gave his name to the resulting treaty between the Austrians and Spanish. Warning his new negotiator as to his duties and the king's expectations, King Philip wrote to Onate in early 1617, saying, The Count of Onate should be instructed to say to the imperial and archducal ministers that, because of the petitions of the emperor and the archdukes, it would be easy for these crowns to fall to Archduke Ferdinand. It is convenient to give this reply so as to convince Archduke Ferdinand, the Emperor and his brothers, not to believe that this renunciation is to be given them freely. It is convenient that the first step in this negotiation be that those princes think to give me compensation. Any delays in the Austro-Spanish negotiations were countered by threats from Madrid that Philip would back an alternative candidate to the Hungarian and Bohemian crowns. Due to Vienna's want of funds, and the fact that it was fighting another war against Venice at this time as well, Philip knew that he held most of the cards. If Ferdinand of Styria wanted to become Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor, and if the Austrians wanted the tap of subsidies to be turned back on, then they would have to grant Philip what he requested. Yet, in Madrid, there seemed little consideration of the possibility that by delaying the question of the succession, 
a Protestant candidate might emerge for the Bohemian crown, with potentially disastrous consequences. The best course of action would have been a speedy resolution of the entire issue, and greater cooperation within the wider Habsburg family to ensure that no external enemies were able to capitalise on the Habsburg disunity. Alas, Philip III believed emphatically in his right to compensation, and he believed all the more so in the importance of being confirmed as the leading figure of the Habsburg family. For these facts to be affirmed, Philip pressed the Austrians, and more specifically Ferdinand of Styria, until he got what he wanted. The King of Spain may have pushed harder than he otherwise would have done had he and Ferdinand not been, until relatively recently, tied by marriage. Ferdinand's late sister had been married to Philip III until her death in 1611, just at the moment when a pro-Austrian voice in Madrid would have been of great utility to Ferdinand's cause. We're going to continue examining these negotiations in a sec, guys, but first I want to let you know something that's quite interesting and actually a little bit exciting as well. If you weren't aware, a while ago, in November 2018, I attended this thing called the Sound Education Conference, and it was really enjoyable and really good, and I made some really good contacts in the process. One of these was Zachary Davis, a guy who, of course, has a wonderful first name, but who also shares a passion for history like I do, and like many of us do here. Zachary Davis had his own podcast called The Ministry of Ideas, which you can check out, but he also wanted to do something different. He wanted to make a platform where, basically, educational podcasts could thrive, kind of like what we want to do as well. So he went for it and created an app called Lyceum. I would really encourage you to get that app as soon as possible. Because Lyceum doesn't just provide a place where you can find your favourite educational podcasts very easily and stream them like you would do on Spotify. It also gives you a chance to chat with people who are interested in the podcast like you are in the discussion groups that are available. Now I know what you're probably thinking because it's similar to what I was thinking as well. The last thing I need is another app for podcasts. Why would I want to discuss things with people when I already talk enough to history nerds as is? That's fine if you're not interested, but if you are, I can personally guarantee that, at least in my view, Lyceum works much better than Spotify. And if you're using Spotify for podcasts and you don't necessarily want to download them, then I much prefer Lyceum's interface as it stands now. At the very worst, the app is free, so you'll lose nothing by checking it out. And in this month of May, and for many months in the future, Agora, that podcast network that When Diplomacy Fails is with, will be working with Lyceum, so expect to hear more about them in the future. It's an exciting time for educational podcasting, especially now when we all really do need to work together to make this medium work. Lyceum, in my view, brings it to the next level and shows that there is a genuine future and interest for educational podcasting. So if you want to check that out, search for the app Lyceum right now. And if I've pronounced it wrong this entire time, saz. But now, back to the show. The Onate Treaty of 1617 must be considered a victory for King Philip III because it granted him virtually everything he had desired. But while Philip won this battle against his Austrian relatives and gained portions of Italy as well as Alsace, it has to be said at the same time that the Spanish king squandered an awful lot as well. By delaying the question of the succession so long, until almost the final moments of Emperor Matthias's life, Philip ensured that Ferdinand would feel more pressure to accede to his demands. However, 
it is worth considering that this very delay helped to facilitate the revolt which erupted in Bohemia and Hungary over 1618-19, and that it forcibly removed Ferdinand from the Bohemian throne, thereby precipitating the Thirty Years' War. It would be too simplistic to blame the Thirty Years' War on Philip III's quest for compensation, of course, but the real damage which Philip did to his family's position must not be understated. From 1615 to 18, the Austrians were fighting a war against the Venetians, as we mentioned, and this war had come about after the Croatian Irregulars, which served under the Habsburgs' banner, began to engage in piratical activities on an unacceptable scale. These Croatian Irregulars, called Uskoks after the Serbian term for refugees, had been making problems for Venice since the late 16th century, and the inopportune eruption of this issue into full-blown conflict with Austria forced Ferdinand to expend more resources and send more urgent pleas to Spain for aid. While it is true, as Geoffrey Parker wrote, that the Uzcock War was one of the more bizarre episodes of the early 17th century, it is also the case that it offered an alarming example of how a minor conflict in a remote corner of Europe could threaten to engulf the whole continent in war. Originally, you see, the Austrians had appreciated the activities of the Uskok because they preyed upon Turkish shipping and thus they undermined the trade of the Habsburgs' greatest enemy to the east. However, it soon became apparent that the Uskoks did not distinguish between Turk or Christian and the most active other naval power in the Adriatic, Venice, was soon adversely affected by their behaviour. Initially, the Venetians tried to ignore the problem by simply spending more on their defences leading to gradually climbing expenses on their escorts and insurances until they reached the impossible cost of 360,000 talers for the year. Venice had had enough, and they sought to engage the Uzcock pirates by attacking and besieging their overlord, Ferdinand, at the city of Gradisca in Inner Austria in December 1615. Technically, the Uzcocks were subjects of the Hungarian crown rather than the Austrian archdukes, but the Venetians, much like us, had little time for such technicalities. What they needed was to force an end to the ruinous piracy, and they were willing to take desperate measures in line with this end. By their attack and the inevitable Austrian response, the Austrians would be forced to come to blows with Venice. But the Venetians had already engaged in an extensive diplomatic campaign designed to curry favour and support against these piratical agents of the Austrian Habsburgs. Predictably, the other maritime powers became involved, as English and Dutch volunteers sailed to the Adriatic to aid the Venetians in their quest to make the region safer for trade. With the Austrians attacked and isolated, appeals inevitably would be made to Spain. The need to acquire aid and support from Spain, King Philip well understood, would serve as a further source of pressure in Vienna to make them accede to his demands. But he could not turn his attentions solely to the Austrians, because by 1615, Philip was aware that events in North Italy had become inflamed thanks to a war of succession in the Duchy of Mantua. Mantua was a well-fortified Italian city-state, which claimed territory and key fortresses like Montferrat, but it had long been positioned in a contentious region for the French, the Spanish and for Savoy, all of whom claimed spheres of influences and rights of inheritance in the region. In time, the war with Mantua would profoundly impact Franco-Spanish relations, but at this moment, in 1615, the issue provoked fewer belligerences in Madrid and Paris, and a good deal more scheming instead.
The French tried to induce Savoy to attack Mantua's possessions in Montferrat, and they enjoyed the support not only of the Venetians, who were battling the other Habsburg branch in the Uzcock War, but also German Protestants. The Evangelical Union, which had been established a few years before, involved itself in this dispute, and Count Ernst of Mansfeld marched with 4,000 Germans to resolve the dispute in favour of the Savoyard candidate. Since Spanish forces were besieged in Spanish Lombardy, there was nothing they could do to aid Ferdinand of Styria in the Uzcock War, and thus the interconnectedness, as well as the dangerous tendency of regional conflicts to spread like wildfire, were on full display. Indeed, the cooperation of the Habsburg's enemies, the Dutch, who were meant to be at peace with Spain for several more years included in this, sent a stern message. But it was the prospect of Calvinist Dutch soldiers arriving in Venice that caused the most anxiety in Madrid. Religion and reputation are the two great matters which sustain states, so claimed Madrid's Council of State at the time. A full-blown war with the Dutch already seemed on the cards if the Republic did indeed decide to land men in Italy to help Savoy and Venice. Such was the danger these men were believed to pose to the Spanish reputation and position. Spanish might had proved insufficient to deter the Dutch in their schemes, but the war between the two powers was not reignited because mediation found a way. The Uzcock War had piled a great deal of pressure on Austrian negotiators to resolve their issues with Spain quickly, lest Emperor Matthias died before they were finished, or the Bohemians and Hungarians selected their own Protestant kings instead. These were genuine dangers, and the fact that the Onet Treaty was signed the year before the defenestration of Prague and the eruption of the Thirty Years' War, followed shortly thereafter by the formal deposing of Ferdinand as King of Bohemia and the offering of the crown of Bohemia to a foreign Protestant, is very telling. From the terrible results which came after the Onet Treaty, it would appear that King Philip III, in his quest for satisfaction and to demonstrate his own supremacy, cost his dynasty dearly. The Onet Treaty and the events which surrounded it left the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs with a great deal of answers, but also some new and arguably more troubling questions. It had not gone without notice that the German Protestants had so readily teamed with France and Savoy during the Mantuan affair, nor had Ernst of Mansfeld's command gone under the radar. Faced with another regional crisis, would the German Protestants be expected to interfere once again? For Ferdinand, the questions had been painful and illuminating at the same time. King Philip III was plainly unwilling to give away anything for free, even to his relatives, yet his cooperation and the subsequent peace treaty with Venice in 1618 demonstrated that Spain could and would cooperate militarily with its Austrian cousins. Could this cooperation be genuinely relied upon in the future, particularly if a crisis emerged within the Holy Roman Empire? Indeed, to the German Protestants, the cooperation with the Habsburg's traditional enemies provided them with much encouragement, but it was also noted that Spain did rescue Austria from its unprofitable war with Venice. Had the terms of the Onet Treaty been known, since the treaty was by its nature a secret one, then there would have been further cause for controversy and concern. Vienna may have received the desperately needed Spanish aid, but this was only after Philip III had received some Italian fiefs and Alsace the latter of which he would never be able to properly incorporate into Spain. In addition, the Spanish had given their blessing for Ferdinand of Styria to surge ahead with his plans to assume the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary, and to sit as Holy Roman Emperor in the near future. 
This was arguably the most important concession given by Philip III during the negotiations. It meant that Spain would not be able to command all of the Habsburg dominions, as Charles V had done several decades before. It also meant that the two branches would have to cooperate and aid the other, if their interests were to be preserved, and if the Counter-Reformation was to continue. To King Philip III, the outcome of the Onate Treaty meant something else. It meant that Spain suffered from a kind of identity crisis just at the wrong time. What territory was in the Spanish interest to save, and what was absolutely critical to hold on to, and what mattered less if it was lost or ceded? Was it North Italy, Alsace, or Bohemia? Was it all three? Since he had been unable to determine the answer to the critical question, and since his subjects acting in foreign capitals had been even less consistent, the King of Spain found that Spanish policy was ill-defined at precisely the wrong time. Or, as Magdalena Sanchez concluded, Because this issue remained unresolved, the Spanish government was unable to decide where to concentrate its financial and military resources or which areas to disregard. Consequently, the Spanish monarchy continued to spread its resources thin by becoming involved in the Bohemian Revolt. In 1618, when the Bohemians in Prague threw Ferdinand's two councillors out the window, out too fell Spain's grandiose plans for Alsace and Italy. Gone were Philip's plans for an enlarged, stronger monarchy in clear possession of northern Italy and Flanders, and the Habsburg House found itself engaged in a ruinous war. King Philip III of Spain had sought to gain great concessions by leveraging the advantages that he held over his familial allies in Austria. Through this process, Spain would be strengthened and vested with more lands and titles than before, or she would be fully satisfied and Philip's imperium would stretch into Bohemia, Hungary and the Holy Roman Emperor's throne. These ambitions were all wrong-headed as much as they were great leaps in wishful thinking. They were wishful thinking because Ferdinand could never give up his claims on the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary, nor could he relinquish his plans to sit on Matthias's throne. In addition, they were wrong-headed, not only because the Austrian Habsburg dynasty was in desperate need of succour rather than demands from its Spanish relatives, there was also an urgent need to resolve the crisis in Bohemia, bubbling over since 1609 with a firmly designated and supported succession decision. Just in time, in October 1617, papal mediation brought the succession crisis in Mantua to an end by postponing it until the Duke of Gonzaga died, which he did in the late 1620s, triggering the next phase of that conflict, as we'll see. In addition, Ferdinand was named King-Designate of Hungary earlier in 1617, and he now possessed the necessary power to order the resettling of those Uskoks who had posed so many problems to the Venetians. These two Italian conflicts in Mantua and Venice apparently solved, the reality underneath the calm surface was deeply unsettling. The resolution of the Habsburg succession had led to a closer alliance between Madrid and Vienna, just as the Protestant Germans, Dutch, French, Savoyards and Venetians were closing ranks against them. It is worth detailing the content of the Onate Treaty, since this will help to demonstrate its net significance. It was Count Onate who renounced Philip III's rights to the imperial succession in his king's name, writing that I, the above-mentioned envoy and empowered representative, by the power of my plenipotentiary authority, confirm and certify in the name of the king my master, and his children, the aforementioned renunciation and cession of the rights derived from his mother Queen Anne. 
in doing so, I renounce in the name of my king and his children all rights, whether those of my master the king or the young prince infant, and of his sons that they possess or will have by whatever means to the aforementioned kings and provinces in favour of Archduke Ferdinand and his legitimate male heirs without any restriction, imitation or delay, except subject to the following modification and condition that a compensation and recompense will be provided in the form of an Austrian province, which one could and would desire, and which will be negotiated as soon as possible, thereby bearing in mind the protection that the House of Austria has found until now in Spain, so that appropriate satisfaction follows for all these good deeds. In response to this declaration from Count Onate, Ferdinand would add a declaration of his own to the effect that I am convinced that my rights to, as well as my conduct towards the kingdoms of Hungary and Bohemia, is manifest and well-grounded. However, the Almighty King of Spain is also of the view that his conduct and declarations towards the same kingdoms is well-founded. My position derives from this situation, not merely to avoid any cause for strife and disputes, in view of the current political situation, which necessitates a swift settlement of the succession to both these kingdoms and the empire, but also to reinforce and consolidate the bonds of mutual love, beneficent goodwill and blood ties between us, I, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, in view of the imminent renunciation of all rights of the Spanish king to the aforementioned kingdoms, will grant the said king or his successors everything that is asked of me that I am able to grant if I, by the grace of God, receive the dignity of the title of Holy Roman Emperor. Indeed, Ferdinand was aware that the time for interdynastic disagreement was hardly ideal, and that over the five long years that the dispute had simmered, the Habsburgs' problems had only grown much worse. As we have seen, while Philip was conceding these titles, he did not intend to do so for free. Ferdinand's declaration contains reference to Piombino and Finale, two fiefs located just along the upper western coast of Italy, between Tuscany and Genoa. These would have to be handed over to Spain, but as for Alsace, Ferdinand explained that it was proving difficult to hand this territory over as well. I ask His Majesty, that is, His Majesty the King of Spain, Philip III, not to hold it against me that I cannot make this, Alsace, available, because so many difficulties and problems arise that prevent me from offering it. However, should the time come for him to demand this of me, but if appear neither advantageous nor advisable, I promise to provide appropriate compensation. There was much talk of keeping the treaty's terms secret and of hiding the fact that Ferdinand was ceding lands to Philip from the public treaty's text. As for how this treaty would explain Philip's renunciation of his rights on Ferdinand's inheritance in the absence of acknowledging the ceded territories, Ferdinand elaborated that the treaty could allude to the correspondence of law with the public good, as well as the king's tender inclination towards me. Due to the scandal which would inevitably break if it was learned that the future emperor Ferdinand II had ceded several imperial lands to Philip III, Ferdinand accepted that it was imperative I must not divulge the aforementioned renunciation and on no account remove or diminish the security of the secret agreement so that no clauses stand in the way and no connection can be made between the general renunciation and the aforementioned future session. Ferdinand was attempting to acquire the renunciation from Philip and to cover his bases. 
So long as the King of Spain was promised this compensation, he proved willing to renounce his claims on the Bohemian and Hungarian thrones, in addition to the imperial succession. The Oney Treaty had, after some time, finally achieved its purpose. Harmony and cooperation had returned to the wider Habsburg family, and just in time. A properly supported and funded succession for Bohemia would have meant that Spain had the means and the time to help Ferdinand prepare the ground and to impress upon its population the unity and sturdiness of the Habsburg family name. Alas, though, King Philip's decision to delay these processes between 1612 to 17 meant that Ferdinand had barely a year to ingratiate himself on the Bohemians, and that when he did so, he failed to make the necessary impressions or take the necessary precautions to ease the concerns of the Bohemian peasantry, the nobility, and clergy. And all of these concerns, by the way, were legion. In the next episode, we're going to examine the rocky relationship that Ferdinand endured with the Bohemians. We're going to see how he planned to traverse their objections and fears, and how he managed to be named King of Bohemia in spite of Spanish actions rather than because of them. I hope you're enjoying this detailed coverage, history friends, and that you'll join me for that episode in two weeks' time. But until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fells a Series on the Thirty Years' War, episode 13. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.